0: All right, this week we're looking at Acts 8, 26 through 40. Thanks. Um, Is that loud enough? Do we need more? Because I get all quiet. Elizabeth says that like at the poignant moments, my voice kind of trails off. But see, that's my way of getting everybody to kind of come in. You have to work to pay attention. Um, I don't think it's ever going to change. I've been trying to change it for years. <laughs> um all right part 2 on evangelism. 2 weeks ago we looked at the first part of chapter 8. And we're looking at the latter part of chapter 8, 26 through 40. That word makes us all feel weird, we're uncomfortable with it, we feel guilty about it, we feel fearful with it, whether you're a believer or not. None of us like that word. Um and by what I mean, this is what I mean in simplest terms about what evangelism is. God's people making Christ known in a winsome way. Just causing the world to know who Christ is. Um, and, and, and in that, also kind of throwing out the free offer of grace and healing that our king has to offer. Um, that's all I mean by that. And... Um, We're going to look at 26 through 40, and this is an interesting passage because this is the first time in Scripture that one individual sits down with another individual kind of after Jesus has come and done His work, and they just, one guy tells another guy about Jesus. That conversation we all fear and dread, right? And uh, so we're going to look at that night and see what we have to learn. This is the Word of the Lord. Now the angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship, and he was returning, seated in his chariot. And he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah, the prophet, and he asked, Do you understand what you're reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now, the passage of scripture that he was reading was this Like a sheep, he was led to slaughter, like a lamb before its shearer is silent. So he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life was taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? about himself, or about someone else. Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Let's pray that he would teach us. Lord, as we consider your word, as we consider what it means to be your people, to be a royal priesthood, to be those who've been um, changed, transformed, forgiven by your grace, dear God, I pray that now you'd open our hearts and open our minds and push our wills to be transformed such that we become agents of that grace in this world, dear Lord. That we make your name known. That we become about something other than ourselves. Teach just, dear God, be with us, Holy Spirit. Soften our hearts. In your name we pray. Amen. Um, again, that word evangelism unnerves everybody. And to some, it kind of represents one of the more offensive <laughs> aspects of Christianity. It's this kind of imperialistic disrespectful, trying to win somebody away to, to your way of thinking kind of thing, which is offensive in a lot of ways in this culture. And I want to make two points about that. If that's kind of the can't be fallen like you you gotta let people to believe what they want to believe to try to win them to your way of thinking. I mean that's it's just kind of pushy and it's offensive in some ways. Okay, and I wanna make this point. I kind of made it last time but it's worth reiterating. Okay, that's what everybody's doing. When you tell someone I don't think you should be pushy about the way you think. What you're doing is you're pushing the way you think upon them. (coughs) The reality is all conversation, all relationship, all interaction, all communication is different people throwing out ideas and trying to win each other to their way of thinking. That's what it means to relate to one another, okay? And when you say, I don't think you should do that, you're actually trying to win people to your way of thinking. You're doing the very thing you're prohibiting. Are you following me on that? Secondly, I want to say this as well. Y'all might be familiar... (laughs) Penn and Teller are kind of dated now. Are you all familiar with Penn and Teller, the magician-comedian duo? Okay, they're a magician-comedian duo, for those of you who don't know who they are. Um, Penn Gillette, though, he's kind of the main guy, is public atheist. He's kind of known publicly for his atheism and all that kind of stuff. And um, he actually had this to say about after one of their shows they did in Vegas, a guy came up to him, gave him a Bible, and presented the gospel, and Penn, the atheist... Uh, said this, he said he was very gracious, he was very kind, he was very winsome. And this is actually his word that he said afterwards. And in fact, I don't respect people who don't proselytize. If you believe there's a heaven and hell, and believe people could be going to hell, and you think, well, it's not really worth telling them because it's, it would make it socially awkward. How much, this is the, these are the words of an atheist, how much do you have to hate somebody not to proselytize? Okay. So again, if this is something that makes you uncomfortable, this word evangelism... Christians thinking other people should trust in Jesus. You've got to at least consider this. If we as believers, as those of you who call yourself Christians, and you're, you're looking at us and you're thinking, ah, oh, that's so pushy. Okay, if we believed, whether or not you, this is right or wrong, right? We'll even take that out of the equation. If we believe that there's life and forgiveness and healing and the peace of the world may be sought in this person, Jesus, what would you think of us if we never told you about him? Could you respect us if we never told you about him? If we believe that was the source of peace in life, you should fully expect Christians to talk about this person Jesus. In fact, you shouldn't have respect for those of us who don't talk about him because a Christian believes this is what brings peace and healing to the world. So if it's offensive to you, I hope that you would consider those points. Um, To others, it's a topic laced with fear and... um, What I hope happens is that we begin to move from fear back to faith. It's fear that stops us, and it's faith that causes us to move forward and outward. And um, lastly, one last question before we kind of jump into the text, where this is really the first verse. An angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. And so we're reading this, and it's like, okay, how fair is it to say we should be doing what Philip does because Philip had an angel come and tell him to do it, Right? So can we assume that we have the same kind of calling that angel has? He was commissioned. He knew for sure. Okay, and to that point, I want to say this. The Bible says that the Bible is more authoritative than angels. So when the Bible commissions God's people to make disciples in the world, to be a royal priesthood, to be a Rome of Christ to the place in which they live, Paul's own words in Galatians 1.8 says, Trust the Bible over angels. So there is a real and true sense in which you have actually been more strongly and firmly commissioned to preach the gospel than Philip was when an angel visited him. That's actually how the Bible says it. Peter says in uh, 2 Peter 1.19, Peter saw God come down and talk to Jesus, saw it with his own eyes, heard it on the transfiguration. And Peter says in 2 Peter 1.19, I saw that, but we have something more sure than what I saw and heard, and that is the prophetic word. You catch my drift? Yeah, Philip had an angel come tell him and say, hey, you need to tell this guy about Jesus. The Bible, Peter, Paul, all say, yeah, that's true, but you should actually, the confirmation and the commission of Scripture is actually stronger and more firm than even that. So in fact, though we didn't see an angel, maybe some of you have. I don't know what kind of hallucinogenic drugs going on in here. But uh, that was a joke. Um, that was a bad joke, apparently. Uh that was off the top of my head. That's always dangerous. It um, just kind of came out. Uh, y'all ever seen Brian Regan? Oh, words are coming out. <laughs> yes, that one dropped. <laughs> Point being, we're all commissioned like Philip does. And I just we have two points tonight that we see in this text, and that the gospel's for anyone because it speaks to everyone. The gospel is for anyone because it speaks to everyone. And what we see, the first thing that Luke is telling us in this passage, is that these are vastly different individuals that have virtually nothing in common. In this passage, Philip and this Ethiopian eunuch. Because the first thing we see in in verse twenty seven is we kind of there's these cataloged kind of characteristics of who this person is. So Philip hears this angel go towards go towards the south, the road that goes from Jerusalem to Gaza. And he rose and went. And we get this, again, these are important details. We're given all these details. There was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace. That's the title for the queen of the Ethiopians. He was in charge of all her treasure. He'd come to Jerusalem to worship. So we're given all these details about who this individual is. They're important. First of all, he's an Ethiopian. At this point, Ethiopia is actually where present-day Sudan is. Um, there's a massive ethnic difference here. Philip is a Jewish commoner. This is a black man from Sudan. The very first interpersonal evangelistic encounter that occurs in Scripture is between a Jewish guy and a black man. It's complete other ethnicity. He's a eunuch. I'm not going into details, but he's castrated. That was something that was common in this day for men to hold high offices in certain kingdoms. They would be castrated to make them trustworthy. And so men would do this because of all the honor of the, of the uh, position they could gain. It marked their trustworthiness. But it also had another implication here because this guy had gone to Jerusalem to worship. And when you go back into Deuteronomy and they talk about the worship that happens at the temple in Jerusalem, eunuchs are not only not admitted into the temple, they're not admitted into the grounds that the Gentiles, the non-Jews, are normally admitted into. They're held on the outermost ring. So this is not merely... The, you know, a sign of his kind of high position in the government is actually also tells us something about the kind of worship he participated in because it would be the equivalent of this. If somebody said, I'd like to go to Midtown or First Pres and see what this Jesus thing is all about, and they got to those churches and the guys said, well, you can't come into worship here because you're ritually unclean, and in fact, you can't stand in the narthex, but if you stand outside, we'll turn it up loud enough so you can hear what we're talking about. That's, the, that's his experience with worship in Jerusalem. He's different ethnically, he's different religiously, he's different politically, he's different geographically. He's the minister to the, uh, the minister of finance to the Queen of Ethiopia. He's a high official. Okay, he managed all the money of the kingdom. He was wholly different in terms of power and influence. Again, Philip's just a Jewish commoner. And then another detail is he's actually reading Isaiah, and that's significant. This is pre-printing press, right? for books, for scrolls to be recorded, it was done by hand. They were very, very expensive. Very few individuals would ever own a scroll by themselves. For him to be casually reading a scroll is a sign of great wealth. People don't have scrolls laying around. Race, wealth, religion, power and influence, politics, in every single way, you can't walk on campus and see somebody more different from you than the Ethiopian eunuch was from Philip, if that makes sense. It's and it's kind of awesome and powerfully interesting that the first encounter that one person talks to another person about Jesus is between these two totally different individuals. And what he's showing us is that the gospel is for anyone. The gospel doesn't see ethnicity, socioeconomic status, r- religious, any of those things as barriers to evangelism. There's just not anybody for whom it is not for. You don't, you don't, this is what it means. You don't have to worry if people are really different from you. You don't have to worry if people are really different from you. You don't have to worry if they're racially different from you. You don't have to worry if they're from different regions of, of the socioeconomic spectrum. The application to just seeing these details is that we have to stop believing that the gospel is for certain types of individuals and certain types of relationships. It's for anybody. And I get your discomfort with that because I feel it too. And that's why God chose to tell us the first time one individual talks to another individual about Jesus. He just says, let me show you how this crosses over every possible boundary you can imagine. Let me show you how the gospel is for anybody. And it's for any relationship. And in that, I want to see that the gospel is for anybody, but we engage people as individuals. And that's kind of the second, that's the sub point of this. It's for anybody. You don't have to look around and think, oh, maybe I can, maybe it's for this type of person. It's for anybody. But Philip engages the Ethiopian eunuch as an individual. And what I mean by this, the first thing he does is not speak. In the passage, the Spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him. And what's the first thing he does? He listens to him. He's paying attention to what he's doing. He listened to him. And then the second thing he did was ask him questions. Do you understand what you're reading? And the third thing he does is listen again. And I'm saying all that because, he let, to make this point, he lets the eunuch tell him where he is, what the Ethiopian is struggling with, and then Philip brings the gospel into that specific situation. The gospel is for anyone, but we engage individuals. God's people, the gospel, engage individuals where they are. And to illustrate it, one of my great failures is kind of a perfect illustration. Studying abroad in London when I was in um, undergrad, had a train ride one day to go see the Baths in Bath, England, or Bath, as they say. Um, And I sat next to this other college-age girl in the train, and we just kind of struck up a conversation. You know, I thought oh, here's an interesting time to kind of throw out the God conversation. So we did. And I had these clever, prepackaged, philosophical, kind of metaphysical arguments about the existence of God and all this kind of stuff, these great apologetics I had well-crafted and honed and all that kind of stuff. Um, and we talked about it for 45 minutes. She was bright. She had great arguments. We really respected each other. It was a great conversation. And as we pulled into the station, she was still really resistant to everything. And... um And these were her parting words. Literally, she's getting off the train. She says, I love having these kind of conversations. This is really interesting. You made me think. And then she said this, but what I'm really struggling with is not these kinds of questions. What I'm really struggling with is the fact that my grandparents are my two best friends and they both are terminally ill right now. I didn't engage her as an individual. I had this prepackaged argument, beat her up with it. I didn't bring the gospel to the place where she was experiencing pain. Philip gives us a picture of gospel proclamation in which he goes to where the eunuch is thinking, where the eunuch is struggling, where he's asking, where he's considering. Philip asks a question, and he listens. He doesn't batter him with this pre-prepared agenda that has no respect for individuals and where they are. The first thing he does is just learn about the eunuch and care about him as an individual. This means for us, this is the most important first thing you do as you consider your friends and maybe hopefully begin to long that they know you're king, is you listen. The first thing you do in evangelism, the first thing you do in friendship, the first thing you do as people to love one another, is just to listen, <coughs> to, to ask questions and listen to people's stories. And what that reveals is, well, this is what it reveals. If you don't listen, if that's not really your first act, it reveals in a sense that you're actually not there for them. If your first act is, here's my prepackaged plan to kind of beat you up with, then your goal, that actually reveals that your goal is to chalk up a statistic, make you feel better about the fact that you kind of feel guilty about You don't do it. And so you push a conversation on some unwitting coffee drinker at Cool Beans, right, so that you can cover your guilt and get your box checked off. Because them as an individual is not really the issue here. It's really you getting your evangelism box checked off here, which reveals it's kind of about you and not about them. But when you begin by listening, caring about their stories, well, that reveals that it is about them. It's no longer about you. That you actually maybe are beginning to love and to care for them. If you're there for them, then you desire the gospel. Actually, to go to the places where they are experiencing pain and brokenness. And you've got to learn where those places are. You've got to go into those places with them. And it's dark. It's hard. But to take the, individ- the gospel to an individual, is for anyone. But Philip engaged in an individual means the first thing you do is, you just ask questions and you just listen. It's for anyone, and yet it engages people as individuals, and that might sound like offensive Christian method, right, for evangelism. And that's why it's imperative, and that's why the second point is kind of the heart of what we want to talk about tonight is for anyone because it speaks to everybody. The eunuch is reading from Isaiah 53. He's reading verses 78, 7 and 8. And if you haven't read Isaiah 53, go back and read Isaiah 52, 53, 54, 55, 56. They're rich. They're be- I mean, I don't know how to plug Isaiah 53 other than it's my favorite chapter of the Old Testament. It's dark and it's beautiful at the same time. And what it talks about is it talks about this individual, this this person called the servant, or the servant of the Lord. And in graphic terms, very graphic terms, it describes his death. And at this time what happened, the reason the eunuch's kind of confused is most Jewish scholars kind of thought, well, the servant that's being referred to is either Isaiah, the prophet himself, or it's Israel, the corporate nation of Israel. And so he's kind of confused. He wants to know who it's talking about. And so Jesus, I mean, and so Philip begins with this passage and begins to tell him, that it's actually all about Jesus. And I want to consider this passage from Isaiah because it's here among other places that we see that the gospel speaks to everyone. This description of Jesus reveals how the gospel speaks to everyone. Because the description is of someone who's innocent, and yet he's silent when he's falsely accused and killed. And the image of a lamb is an image of of just kind of docile, quiet obedience, but it's also temple language of the sacrifices that occurred in the Old Testament that lambs were killed at the temple. And you might be thinking, okay, well, how does this speak to everyone? Because this is weird language. How does the death of an innocent or the blood of an innocent speak powerfully to everyone? And this is how, and I'm borrowing heavily from Tim Keller on this. We're all guilty. We're all guilty. And you might ask, what does guilt have to do with this? It's everything. The whole passage in Isaiah is about a servant who would die for the iniquity of others, for the guilt of another, who would be beaten, who would be wounded for the transgression of another, who would bring, pre, who would bring peace and healing to someone to someone else by his death. The whole passage is about dealing with our guilt. And you might wonder, okay, guilt. What do you... What are you talking about? And I'm talking about this reality. It's something that's true of all of humanity and it always has been. We all live in fear of being truly known. We all under live in fear that if we're really put under the microscope, if someone knows us, if someone really sees all the motivations for why we do what we do, if someone really sees in deeply into who we are and sees it all, under close scrutiny, through deep evaluation. We know we'll be found lacking. And guilt is simply the knowledge that we are not fit. It's the knowledge that we are not fit, that we don't feel right, that we don't feel enough. And we're scared to death of being fully known. We had from each other and we had from God. And we had in plain sight because we're pretty good at presenting an exterior that appears acceptable and successful and content and good. Pretty good at that. But we know it's a farce, and we bear a sense of guilt knowing that if we're really known, if someone sees into who all of we are, (coughs) sees into our good things and our bad things, that there's darkness there. And so what we do is we work, and we work, and we work to deal with it, and to cover it, and to mute it, and to wash it away, and it never seems enough. It's never enough. Have all your attempts to be a good person washed away your guilt? No. Have all your attempts to be really religious. And there's times when like, it hits hard, and you're like, man, I'm an evil, dark person. There's darkness, there's selfishness, there's brokenness in my life. And so I'm going to be better. Did it work? Did it wash away your guilt? No. I'm going to be more disciplined this time. I'm going to do it right this time. Maybe you're even successful at continuing that pattern, being more disciplined, and doing more right and working harder. Did it wash away your guilt? Did it wipe away your sense of guilt? No. And you might think again: you're here, you're considering things. Okay, guilt—it's one of those manipulative tools Christians use, right? We're more sophisticated in believing in guilt now. That's kind of—that's old news. It, you know, it's not helpful for people to feel guilt. Uh, but here's the reality of it. You actually don't believe that. It's actually guilt that is the last thing that still marks us as human. What I mean by this, what would it be like in this world if there was no sense of guilt, right? If we did as we please, and there was no kind of common understanding or individual understanding of what right or wrong is, Okay, that world actually does exist. There is a society in which people live with, having, with no sense of right or wrong. That society exists because actually all of us got together and said, it is a horrible and disastrous idea, rightly so, to have those people exist in the general public. And so literally, I mean this in all seriousness, we created hospitals for the criminally insane, for people who don't know the right, the difference between right and wrong, who have no sense of guilt. The idea of having a world with no sense of guilt is a disaster. Christians, non-Christians, whatever you are, we all corporately believe together. That's a horrible idea. It's guilt that actually still testifies to ourselves that we're still human because it's guilt. If it's guilt that still screams in our souls that there's something right. And I'm not it, but there should be something right. That's why sometimes, maybe this is you, this is me certainly at times. You may have talked to me, or maybe this is you. You actually get fearful of the fact that you don't feel guilt. It's a scary thing to stop feeling guilt. Right? It's our last assurance. It's the deepest thing inside of us that still screams that I wasn't supposed to be like this. The world was supposed to be better. Something's wrong. And yet, all our work can't seem to lift the weight of it. And the gospel speaks to everyone because we're all caught in this together. We're all guilty. This is why it speaks to everyone. And guilt demands blood. People have asked, why can't God, why can't he just forgive? Why does there have to be blood? Why does there have to be blood? And it's simple. Guilt is the result of an injury or injustice done from one party to another. Right? Right? That's what guilt is, results from, is when injustice or injury is done from one party to another. When the lady across, I've used this illustration before. Lady across the street backed over my mailbox. She was guilty, right? And the guilt actually had a financial number assigned to it. It was eighty-five dollars. That's how much damage she did to my residence, right? Now, one of two things could have happened. She could have cut me a check for eighty-five dollars. Or, I could have said, you don't have to pay for that, I'll fix it, and guess what? It cost me $85 to do that. Do you see that forgiveness of guilt, to forgive another party, means that the one who's doing the forgiving suffers? Guilt always requires one party, either the offended party or the offending party. It requires blood. It requires suffering on behalf of somebody the offender or the offended. Part of what this means is forgiveness is by definition suffering. It's when you absorb the injustice done to you and you choose not to make the person pay another way. Forgiveness, by definition, actually is suffering. It should feel really hard. And what we often do is we don't really forgive, but we kind of develop these very covert, passive-aggressive ways to punish individuals. Right, through withdrawing in the relationship, rumor, different ways that we kind of punish the people around us. We all have our secret mechanisms. But if you really forgive somebody, it's the hardest thing you do because by definition, it is suffering. When in fact, you had the right to demand justice if you wanted to, instead of justice, you actually chose your own suffering. Forgiveness is the hardest thing you do. Reconciliation between two parties means that one party suffers And it's a payment to resolve the iniquity that's done. There's no forgiveness without pain. And what Philip is explaining to the eunuch here is that this God, this Jesus, he's unlike any other God because he doesn't demand the blood of the people who offend him. He doesn't demand their life. He gives his blood. And he gives his life. So that yours is no longer required. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. He was innocent. He didn't open His mouth. We defend ourselves even when we're wrong. He was completely in the right. He chose not to defend Himself. Verse 8 actually goes on to say, He was stricken for the transgression of God's people. (coughs) Listen, you can live your life trying to pay out for your guilt. You can live your life completely being driven by your inadequacy and that sense of guilt, the thing that sits down inside of you that says you're not right, and you can live your whole life constantly reaffirming and, re, and, and kind of recommitting to cover over that guilt by being better. Where you can go to the one who offers to give his life for you. And you can rest. This passage that the unit looking at It's something that speaks to everybody because everybody, all of us know that we're not going to stand up to close, intimate, thorough inspection that our best stuff and our worst stuff is full of anger and self-righteousness and selfishness, even our best stuff. And we're all laboring to remove the stain of guilt that overwhelms us. There's a great movie called The Machinist by Christian Bales. He made it several years before the Dark Knight movies, he, and he got down to, I think, around 125, 120 pounds in this movie, maybe less than that. And um, the movie is about him becoming OCD because he can't deal with his guilt. And so essentially he depicts what's in all of us and that he becomes more and more controlling his life. He tries to dress up his life better and better and control and manage every little aspect. He's down to kind of scrubbing the grout in his kitchen every night with his toothbrush and washing his hands over and over and over again because he keeps trying to feel like he can make himself clean again and like he can make his world put it back in order again. And the whole movie is about how he's dying from guilt. And it gets in your heart because you see yourself in it. We're all trying to get the stain to go away. And we can't. And ultimately, life is going to be demanded for our guilt. But this is the story of the God who steps in and says, take my life instead. And his life is taken away from the earth. Our guilt is paid for. The blood price, the life price for our guilt is paid for. He substitutes himself for the payment. That we keep trying to make, but we never really can make. And when he does, it's complete. And this is what this means. We keep thinking. And if we don't think this, we at least feel this, right? Religion is about doing better things to make up for our bad things. And that's a, that's a prison. And that gives nobody freedom, and it gives no one life. And what Philip presents to the eunuch is the story of a God who gives his life so that we can be free and so that we can have life. Paul says in Galatians 5.1, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. And he says, don't submit again to the yoke of slavery. Do you know what the yoke of slavery he's talking about in Galatians? He's talking about moralistic, religious observances. He's saying, stop doing that stuff, thinking that you can cover your guilt with it. That's slavery. Christ has set you free from the notion that you have to cover your sin, that you can wipe away, you can do it. It demands all of your life if you want to do it on your own. It demands your blood. It demands your death. Christ steps in and says, I'll die that death for you. That's what Isaiah 53 is. This is what it means for you. You are free from guilt. Brothers and sisters, if you're in Jesus, you're free from guilt. You can't reacquire it tomorrow. You're going to mess up tomorrow. Jesus is taking care of it at the cross. If you're in Christ, you're free. You're free. Stop letting fear drive you to try to cover up your guilt because Jesus has covered it already. You're free. You're free. The life that was demanded of you, it's no longer demanded of you. It never will be ever again. The blood that's demanded of you, it's no longer demanded of you. It never will be ever again. You no longer have to live under this horrible notion that today, if you don't perform, right, then your life and your happiness and your joy and your blood will be demanded of you. This is... uh, Here's how you know if you're actually encountering this concept of the freedom of the gospel. I, don't, I wish I could communicate this richer and better. You know you're encountering it if it's making you scared. You know you're encountering how free this is and how joyful this is if it scares you to think about, okay, because we want to live by fear tomorrow because we love fear, right? Because fear gives us control, right? Because if what we can do is say, I didn't get it together today, but if I do it tomorrow and I get it together, and I start waking up earlier and doing all the right things, well, then I have control, right? But it hasn't worked yet. It hasn't wiped away the stain yet. If you're hearing me, you should start feeling a little bit scared by the kind of freedom Christ has offered you, because he says, you're free from your guilt. I've paid it all. You're afraid. Oh, How... How are we going to make people be good if we don't have fear, right? We gotta have fear. That's how you make good people. We have to keep fear. We can't have freedom. Because otherwise people are gonna do whatever they want. If you encounter the freedom of the gospel, you won't. Because this freedom is so beautiful and it's so liberating that you fall in love with the person who gives it to you. And such so that his law actually becomes a delight to you. His name becomes a joy to you. His face becomes the thing that you long for. That's how the eunuch responds in verse 39, right? When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. Because he was free. He doesn't respond with licentiousness. Oh, well, I'm free, and do whatever I want. He responds with joy. He delights in who the Lord is. The freedom that the Lamb of God purchased for us at the cross, it's so beautiful that it scares us. You're free from the demands of your guilt. Don't waste your time tomorrow trying to cover it. You can't if you're in Jesus. He's already done it. Seriously, don't waste your time. Stop being afraid of the fact that He releases you from the judgment of the law. We're actually afraid to believe that. Stop being afraid that Jesus didn't become your sin. Stop being afraid that He didn't do enough at the cross. Stop being afraid that you haven't done enough. You haven't done enough, but Jesus has. We, We live as if our guilt is what defines us, right? And it's what drives us. But it doesn't for those who are in Christ. It's no longer the fundamental truth about who you are. It's not your guilt. The truth that sits at the center of who you are, that defines you, that determines you, is this. It is the grace and the favor and the love and the substitution and the atoning death of Jesus. You are free from your guilt. You can't cover it. You never have. You won't tomorrow. Jesus does. And we're afraid that kindness and grace and love, those aren't good motivators. We can't make people into good people with those kind of things. We want some fear. Is it any wonder that our worship is so empty when we continue to relate to God by fear and guilt? We continue to act as if Jesus didn't really satisfy justice. This is what Charles Spurgeon, Baptist preacher, says. He says, do not scourge yourself. He's quoting Isaiah 53. With his stripes, with his beatings, we are healed. I beg you, don't think that some, by some kind of spiritual terror or horror into which you force yourself that you're going to be healed. Your healing is in his beatings, not in your own. In his griefs, not in your own griefs. I implore you, do not make your repentance into a rival of the suffering of Jesus so that it would become the Antichrist. When your eyes full of tears, look through them to Christ whom you may see, whether your eye be wet or dry. In Christ on the cross, there are five wounds, but you have not to add even another one of your own in him and in him alone is all your healing in him who from head to foot becomes a mass of suffering that you diseased from head to foot might be the crown might from the crown of your head to the sole of your foot be made perfectly whole you can't cover your sin you haven't been able to wipe away your stain Jesus does you're free there's no condemnation you can't reacquire it tomorrow You actually know that what you're going to ask for before the throne of God, this is actually what those who have rested and trusted in Jesus, the one who pays the penalty for our guilt, this is actually what you're going to ask for in front of the throne of God. You're actually going to ask for justice. Do you know that? You're going to say, God, give me justice. Do you know that? The reason that you're going to ask for justice, and this is what justice will get you, it will get you heavenly rewards. It will get you the grace and favor of the Father. It will get you the Lamb's Feast and the new heavens and the new earth. Because the price for your guilt has been paid by another, and guess what justice means? Justice means God doesn't pay it twice. He doesn't require payment from Jesus and then payment from you. It's been dealt with. You'll go to the throne of God and say, God, give me justice. And he said, this is my justice for you. Welcome to the Lamb's Feast. Your stain has been wiped away. Your guilt has been wiped away. Do you know that you're going to ask for justice from God? Because he's not going to punish the same guilt twice. That would be unjust. That's why the eunuch responds to joy. This is why the gospel is for anyone. And this is why the gospel speaks into all of us. This is why you don't have to be afraid of people anymore. You don't have to live by guilt. You're free. And this kind of freedom, what it does is it prompts us to tell other people about it. That's evangelism. Let's pray.